Chapter Convergence Betson opened his eyes and stared at the clock. It was five in the morning, but he felt as though he had slept at least three hours. After he showered, dressed, and waited for his wife to join him at the table, he again started to think of what to say at the funeral. When his wife arrived, she asked how he had slept, since he had never come to bed last night. I'm sorry I spent the night in the guest house, but I, uh, needed time to reflect on what to say at the funeral. I'm never good at making speeches about personal things, but I think I got it down, he said. When his wife didn't respond, he remembered that their relationship has already progressed to short, meaningless conversations with no substance. As long as he maintained her present financial lifestyle, she didn't care what he did, the relationship was irreparable. Two hours later, Benson sat next to his wife in the third row of pews up from the two closed caskets. The surviving family members, sitting in the closest rows, could not suppress their anguish over the unfortunate event. There were muffled cries and constant sniffles as the priest made her opening remarks about life and death. She briefly talked on how precious and short life was. However, through all the pains and bumps associated with life, God loves us and embraces us in heaven when our time here on earth is over. She continued on for several more minutes before calling Benson to the pulpit to make a few comments. Standing behind the pulpit, Benson cleared his throat, leaned closer to the microphone, and started. There's not much I can say about Daryl Fletcher that you all don't already know, and yet how can I say so little about a man whose life affected me profoundly? Daryl was much more than a visionary and a dreamer. He was a man without equal, a man that embraced the future and had a craze-like frenzy to keep his dreams alive. Benson paused for effect, then continued. From what I know of Daryl, he was a devoted husband and loved his wife dearly, but it was his love for science that brought us together in our friendship. It seems like yesterday we met at a convention, discussing novel research, his aspirations, and creating a bond that survived the years with our initial employment at different companies. Anyway, we're all gathered here today to give our last respects to both Daryl and his lovely wife. They were two beautiful people that enjoyed life to the fullest. It's a shame this accident occurred when they were enjoying each other's company at their vacation home. Benson clenched his fist and then closed his eyes to fight back the tears. Darrell. Darrell was my best friend and I'm going to miss him. I just wish I had the time to say goodbye and tell him what he really meant to me. He was a good man, a very good man. After taking a deep breath, he tried to continue, but couldn't. I, after a long pause, he excused himself when he no longer could find the words. Benson stepped down from the pulpit, shaking his head, and quickly walked outside to his car. Almost immediately, the dreaded phone rang again. That was very touching. You almost had me convinced of your loss, said voice one. Benson didn't know what to say or think, so he just continued listening. I'm not in your situation or will ever be, but there's one thing you need to understand perfectly clear. Your position with us is a precarious one. Take your friend's death as a warning of something that can easily happen to you. From here on, you'd better keep your focus. Do you understand? Yes. Good, enjoy the funeral, said voice one just before the call was terminated. Benson kept a straight face. He was obviously being watched. It was now perfectly clear these people held no value for life and would very soon visit upon him what they did to Daryl if he wasn't careful. There was no way out of this situation. He made his pact with the devil and would have to see it through to the bitter end. What the hell you mean, Coma? The man was recovering and completely lucid when I left. What happened? Keiko demanded with arms crossed. 
trying not to get in the face of Bart's doctor. We're still looking into that, so if you don't mind, I... Yes, I do mind, Keiko interrupted. I left this man under your care, and hours later, he's in a coma. My confidence in your ability to... Now, wait one minute. I really don't care if you're from the FBI. Don't even question my ability as a physician. Many things can happen to the human body we still don't know about, and this happened to be one of those cases. So, until I know more, my patient is off-limits to everyone but the medical staff. Good day. The doctor turned on his heel and walked briskly away from Keiko. She regretted talking to him in such a manner, but she hated unexpected events occurring in a case that was all but finished. The other questions she hoped to get answers to were just icing on the cake to complete the psychological profile on Prophet Barabbas. Not knowing what else to do, Keiko sat down on the closest chair in the waiting room to gather her thoughts. Everything used to seem so clear. A disillusioned cult leader persuading his followers in a mass suicide botches his own death, gets caught, admits his actions, and is a prime candidate for several life sentences in prison. So why was she so confused on the other matters brought up by Pastor James and those text messages between the two sisters? Was it really necessary to have them answered? Would she be satisfied with what was gathered so far? Even Brooke was beginning to think she was making way too much out of these new events. Was there really something beyond the physical going on here? Keiko straightened up to dismiss that last thought. She was a woman of tangible facts, not some esoteric mumbo-jumbo. She needed to unearth all the facts no matter where they might lead, be objective, and not assume anything. This is who she was and would always be. All leads had to be investigated and all questions answered to their fullest extent. And if that meant questioning what she might not be comfortable with, then so be it. It would likely result in something explainable, as it usually does. She took out her cell phone and started dialing a number she really didn't think she would ever call. Hello? A feminine voice answered after several rings. Yes, this is Agent Keiko Carter from the FBI. Can I speak with Pastor James Everett? I'm sorry, but Pastor Everett isn't available right now. He's at the hospital visiting a friend in need. The woman responded. Keiko quickly glanced around the waiting room. I'm the same hospital, and if we're talking about the same friend, named Bart, then I don't see the pastor anywhere. Oh, well, um, maybe he's in the chapel. Can you give me his cell number? Asked Keiko. I'm sorry, Agent Carter, but only the pastor can give you his personal cell number. That's fine. I'll check the chapel, thanks, she said, terminating the call before waiting for a response. Keiko stood up and started to make her way to the chapel, hoping that once she met with Pastor James, this would bring a definite conclusion to this case. Closure was her goal, and one way or another, she was going to get it. With hands clasped, supporting his head, Pastor James knelt behind one of the pews in the hospital chapel. He too felt extremely vulnerable and confused by today's events, Guidance and clarity were desperately what he needed. Just days ago, he was so sure Bart had opened himself up to some lying force, giving him false visions and dreams. But now he struggled with the fact that he had also experienced the very same images, with a totally opposite outcome. For several minutes after entering the chapel, he quietly sought God's help and was determined not to leave until everything made sense. Keiko opened the door to the chapel and immediately saw the pastor kneeling behind one of the front pews. She squashed the impulse to interrupt him and sat, uncomfortably, in the back pew. This was a place she really didn't care for. 
It was a place for weak-minded, hopeless individuals seeking outside direction about something they should have figured out for themselves. She smiled as it dawned on her that at this very moment, she was one of those individuals. Glancing around, she saw all of the trimmings of a chapel. A wooden crucifix hung on a wall at the end of the room directly behind a bigger-than-life Bible on a wooden podium. An oil painting of Jesus of Nazareth and some painted Bible verses littered the walls, demanding her attention. The minutes seemed to drag on as the pastor's soft mumbling filled the room as he prayed without ceasing. Sighing, she wondered why he continued to pray like that if he wanted to hear from God. He should be quiet and listen instead. She realized her sigh must have been too loud when she noticed the pastor stiffen at the sound. He said a few more words, stopped, and turned around. Keiko saw his shock when their eyes made contact. She figured it was the last place he expected to see her. The pastor motioned for her to join him in his pew. I guess you heard about Bart, he said softly. Keiko nodded, sitting down. The doctors couldn't tell me much. Do you know what happened? There was a long, awkward pause before Pastor James responded. I'm not a doctor and can't tell you what physically happened to him. Keiko tensed. All right, here we go, she thought. Okay, in your opinion, what happened to him? And don't leave anything out, she asked. He looked long and hard at Keiko to see if she truly wanted to hear about something totally foreign to what she comfortably believed in, something that might challenge her foundation in science if she was open to it. And then he saw it, a willingness to listen and understand. Pastor James smiled weakly. Agent Carter, it's not what just happened to Bart. It's more like what's happening to all of us. Brooke drove into the parking lot of the Beaufort County Sheriff's Department on Hilton Head Island. The shuttle flight to South Carolina was frustrating due to the hassle of getting a rental car, since Martin didn't deem it necessary for her to collaborate with any of the local FBI contacts to meet her. She was officially on her own, popping a breath mint in her mouth and giving one last glance at her features in the car's vanity mirror. She left the car and approached the building. Before she reached the door, a tall, well-built officer approached her smiling. He laughed inwardly when considering how small and frail she seemed to him. Nothing you would have expected of an FBI agent. She instead embodied some of the rich little spoiled brats visiting the area who either rented a house or hung out at their rich parents' summer homes. Hello, he said as she approached. You must be Agent Cecily. Brooke smiled, melting any hard edges the man had toward her. Close enough, just call me Brooke. I'm Inspector Joseph DeVore. The inspector took her hand to shake and immediately felt the warmth in his face. He released her hand quickly and told her to follow him. As Brooke walked behind him, she couldn't help but smile as she saw the man blush at the touch of her hand. This one was going to be putty in her hands, she thought. When she entered the building, it was modern and well-maintained. Inside, Brooke was impressed with the latest computers and equipment littering each desk. She reasoned they were more than necessary to run the island, but was pleased she would have the tools available to perform her investigation. Joseph guided her to his desk and motioned for her to sit in a chair next to it. He then disappeared for several minutes, returned with a stack of papers and folders, and placed them next to her. Here's everything we have on the Fletcher residence, the fire report, the mortician's observations, even though the bodies were burned to a crisp, and a little more background information on what the couple normally did when they visited. Brooke ignored the papers next to her. What time is it? She asked. Just a little past six o'clock. Why? Joseph asked, caught off guard by the question. Because I'm hungry, Inspector DeVore. 
Other than peanuts and a little wine on the plane, I need something to eat. Brooke said, smiling. Oh, I'm sorry. I just thought you would like to start your investigation right away. Joseph said, apologizing and becoming nervous. This was his first interaction with the FBI, and he didn't want to sour it. Hey, lighten up, I'm not mad. I just don't like to work on an empty stomach. Joseph relaxed. It all depends on what you're in the mood for. Bingo. This guy'll soon spill his guts about how he personally thinks about the Fletcher case, he thought. Burke checked Joseph's ring finger and saw no past or present evidence of any legal or physical attachments. She had to be careful that her flirting never sway from just that. Great, can we look over the details while we eat? She responded. Minutes later, the two were seated in a local restaurant called Marcel's. Brooke was eating a creamed oyster crepe, while Joseph was eating French grilled oxtails. She tried some of the oxtails and decided that it was something she'd never eat again. With the main course and a chocolate mousse cake under their belts, the two sat quietly for a while as the steam from their coffees danced before them. I must say, you're nothing like what I expected from an FBI agent, said Joseph, referring to Brooke's flattering features. Brooke put her cup down. And what do you mean by that, Inspector? She asked, again flashing her patent smile. Well, uh, when you think about the FBI, you think of, I don't know, tall, dark men with sunglasses, no personality and all work. You, you're different. Please don't take any offense. None taken, go on, she said, placing her hands under her chin and elbows on the table. Oh, well, you have this air of being professional and yet at ease with everything around you. Yep, that's me, go on, she said. And, uh, Joseph laughed. That's it. I was wondering when you'd stop. Thanks for the compliments anyway. Brooke took a deep sip of coffee and decided to move the conversation away from her and more toward the case. This is my first time on your island. It's beautiful, from what I can see. Yes, it is, isn't it? Unfortunately, when you've lived here all your life, you tend to take it for granted. He said, Hmm, maybe when I have some free time later, I can do some exploring. She responded, The entire island, he said, shocked. Yep, when I visit a place of interest, I always want to see everything. You wouldn't want to stay with the normal tourist areas of interest, he asked. No, everything, she said slowly. That's unique. Most people just want to relax and familiarize themselves with a few of the most popular sites during their stay. Rarely do they want to visit other areas. Does that bother you? Asked Brooke. No, not really. You have to understand that every paradise has its dark areas. What? Our country's roads are paved with gold. How dare you insinuate anything other than that? She jested, trying not to hide the humor. Joseph smiled. Beaufort County is growing fast, and fortunately, the police department has grown in size along with it. We have done a fantastic job of keeping on top of the, dare I say, predators. We try to discourage tourists from visiting certain areas. Their presence could be too tempting to the wrong element. So, you still have to keep track of certain, can I say, low lives. But of course it's petty stuff, not big time criminal activities, but seriously. How often do you have a serious fire like the Fletchers occurring here? Not often, but off the record. There's too many unanswered questions about this fire that don't add up," said Joseph, glancing around briefly and moving closer. Come on, you're just saying that, said Brooke, baiting him. This case is open and shut. It's a leaky gas line that unfortunately caught fire. I'm just going through the formalities in this investigation. Yes, 
That's what it looks like, and that's how most people here want to keep it, he said softly. If it got out that it was a suspicious fire, that might have an adverse effect on tourism. Joseph, what are you trying to tell me? Joseph straightened up. Not here. Let's go back to my car. Once in the car, Joseph started driving around as if he were showing Brooke all of the interesting sights. Before continuing his previous conversation, he took a deep breath and shook his head. I really shouldn't be telling you this. It could be my job. I mean, I don't really know you. Joseph, everything you tell me is off the record. You can trust me when I say your name will never be attached to anything I might find. You know it by myself, if you know what I mean. Joseph was silent for a while before responding. Okay, it's like this. Houses like that get checked every few months from top to bottom, to ensure everything's working properly, since the owners aren't there often, you know. But any of the Fletchers ran into a problem in between inspections, said Brooke, trying to show a flaw in his logic. Yes, that could have happened if the Fletchers didn't have a live-in maid that maintained the house. She would notice a gas leak. So, why did the gas leak decide to occur when the Fletchers arrived? And why didn't their internal gas alarms activate? Brooke looked out her window and watched several buildings go by before responding. Did you question the maid? No, we can't find her. Brooke turned back to Joseph. When did she seem to disappear? The day of the fire. No one has seen her since, only in a grocery store before the fire. She was grocery shopping before the fire? Asked Brooke. Yep. Oh. Well then, we can roll her out. Joseph glanced at her. Why would you say that? Maybe she started the fire for some reason and took flight. Then, why go grocery shopping? No, everything was probably occurring as it always did. You know, business as usual. If there were bad blood between the Fletchers and the maid, she wouldn't have bothered to do her daily chores. Most likely whatever happened took place when she returned. If she returned, Joseph interjected. That's true. We don't know if she didn't return, but if I'm correct, the fire took place early in the morning. The day after their arrival? Yes. So, we can be sure that she returned with the groceries. For if she never returned, then either Fletcher would have gone to the store for food or at least would have made a phone call for a delivery. Neither of that happened, so the maid returned, said Brooke. The two were silent for a short while. Brooke continued, So what you're saying is that we have a suspicious fire, a missing maid, and two dead, burnt bodies. I think we can rule out suicide. Do you have more? Yes, but it's not in the report, and there's no way you could know about this unless you've questioned the right people. And I'm sure you'll guide me in the right direction, right? Brooke smiled at Joseph. Of course. He paused as if contemplating the gravity of his lack of loyalty to the sheriff's department. There was a suspicious dirty van seen next to the house for several hours before the fire. We have no leads on it, mainly because it wasn't pursued. Any physical evidence? Asked Brooke. Other than the two bodies? No. The site is still being checked as we speak. Where's my room? Excuse me? He asked, confused. Brooke looked at her watch. It's getting late, and I feel like calling it a night and starting out fresh tomorrow. Joseph looked at the setting sun, glanced at his watch, and noticed it was after 8 in the evening. I must apologize. I lost track of time. I'll take you to the bed and breakfast room we reserved for you. Thanks. Next morning, after a buffet-style breakfast, Brooke was picked up by Joseph and taken to the remains of the Fletcher's home. Investigators were still picking through the remains of the incident officially listed, 
as an accidental gas leak explosion and fire. The building, if that's what you could call what was left of it, was totally destroyed. Pieces of burnt and shattered rubble still covered the beach, confirming the occurrence of a gas explosion followed by an intense fire. Pieces of sheetrock rested far away from ground zero, along with various pieces of twisted metal, burnt wood, and pulverized plaster. These remains resisted the shifting patterns of the wind-blown sand and continued to speak volumes to countless viewers who momentarily slowed down to take in the horrific aftermath. Brooke had observed such destruction before, and every time experienced the weight of the deceased calling for their deaths to be avenged. It was an unsettling feeling, but she forged on. The area was still cordoned off, despite the investigation being officially over. However, once the police left, the cleanup would commence, and the beach could finally begin to put the past events behind it. Brooke followed Joseph slowly through the rubble, taking notes and asking routine questions of the people still working there. She was eventually given a long list of acquired items, which she quickly inspected. She stopped when she saw a mini safe. What's this? She asked Joseph, pointing to the item. It's one of those small fire protection safes people buy. I guess this one was strong enough to withstand the explosion. Joseph responded. Interesting. And where are the items on this list kept? She asked. Back at headquarters. Oh, Brooke responded, making mental note. The rest of the walkthrough was uneventful, and in an hour, the two were heading back to headquarters. Brooke prepared herself to present her findings about the investigation to Joseph's supervisor. A bear of a man, easily dwarfing her. He greeted Brooke and incorrectly assessed her as an insignificant junior officer doing mop-up work. The meeting started innocently, with the supervisor asking a variety of questions about the FBI and its procedures for investigations. However, when Brooke requested to interview the neighbors close to Ground Zero, the supervisor immediately became defensive and suggested she refer to the written testimonies from the people they'd already interviewed. When Brooke refused to budge, the man literally accused her of not showing his department the proper respect and insinuated that she was belittling his police force. He quickly added he was appalled that the FBI was here investigating work his people were more than adequate to handle and was going to lodge a formal complaint that she continued to undermine their work. With that threat hovering over her like a dark cloud threatening to unleash a hellish fury, Brooke backed off for the moment. There were always other ways to get what she wanted. So, how'd it go? Joseph softly asked as Brooke sat down next to his desk. As you predicted, she mumbled under her breath. He definitely doesn't want the FBI poking too deep into this matter. Either he's definitely trying to hide the fact about the van, or he's a proud man having no problem letting his pride get in the way. What are you going to do? He asked. Better you don't know. I don't want you to get into trouble. You've been more than helpful, and I'd appreciate that. But I need you to back off now, so you don't look like you've been collaborating with me. Joseph looked around nervously. Is it that obvious? Brooke smiled. No, relax. I need you to go to your supervisor and tell him I'm making a call to my supervisor about something. They'll put two and two together and make his move. This will put you in the clear. Brooke activated her phone and speed dialed her home's landline number. The phone automatically dialed the number, made the connection, and waited for the answering machine to engage. Go, said Brooke to Joseph. Joseph stood up from his desk and headed for his supervisor's office. Brooke's eyes followed him and watched him give his supervisor the bad news, and she suppressed a smile when the supervisor's face turned purple. His eyes locked with Brooke's for a long second or two 
before he picked up his phone and made his call. Hello, this is Brooke C. Cole Lee. I'm not home right now. You know what to do, said the answering machine. Brooke ignored the message and started a fake conversation with Martin. Hi, it's Agent C. Cole Lee. I'm having a problem with the local enforcement. While still talking, Brooke glanced at Joseph's supervisor screaming at the phone. After a few more seconds of bad acting on her phone, she hung up and continued to glance at the supervisor's red-faced ranting. Once finished, he slammed the phone on the desk, barked some orders at Joseph, and stomped away. When Joseph returned, she asked, So, what's the bad news? I was told to tell you a formal protest was sent to the sheriff of Buford County, he said, tentatively. Anything else? No, but I can tell he's not happy and he's definitely not going to be any help on this case. Brooke shrugged. Whatever. I'm fully within my jurisdiction to proceed as I wish, and he knows it. Now that he played his hand, I can get to work. Joseph, I have authority from my supervisor to acquire all of the Fletcher's belongings I deem necessary to my investigation, she lied. Your supervisor doesn't have to like it, but he has to yield to the FBI's request. Brooke handed Joseph the list that he originally gave her some time ago. I want everything here. You can give this request to him. Oh man. What's wrong? She asked. He's really gonna be pissed now, he said, shaking his head. 